You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. My guest today is a progressive Christian who was a special kind of artist. He is a cartoonist. To me, that's wonderful. I'm a boomer, and my childhood was, and most of my whole life has been, infused with cartoons, especially animated cartoons. That is why I'm especially excited about today's conversation. But first, let's have a little fun. I'm going to play a clip, which is the theme song for the cartoon my guest created. See if you recognize the theme and what the cartoon is. Bonus points for also knowing who my guest is. So here goes. That is the theme song for the animated cartoon, Doug. And my guest is Doug's creator, Jim Jenkins. Jim has had an amazing artistic career that he is here to share with us. He's going to give us insight into this creative art form and to talk about how, as a progressive Christian, he sees the relationship between his art and his faith. Well, welcome, Jim. Thank you so much for being with me today. Well, I'm excited to be here, David. Why don't we begin by letting you kind of tell us your own life story, uh, your own journey, especially into cartooning, uh, and, uh, and also your own spiritual journey. That's a big question, David. Um, I think this would be a good time maybe for your visitors to go check their email or uh, maybe <laughs> order a pizza, you know, it's take a while. But I, I will try, and uh, forgive me if I go on too long. But uh, uh, I think that um, I will start, I'm just going to jump in by saying, um, in terms of what we're going to talk about, that I have, since I could crawl to a pencil, I have always been a doodler. And most of my doodling happens when I'm trying to, I'm in a space where you have to listen. And so that would be, oftentimes it would be church. We were a church-going family. You know, my dad had the keys to the building, and we were going to be the first one there and the last to leave, and we as kids had to endure that. And so I would, you know, uh, always make sure I had pencils and uh, could draw on the back of the bulletin, and always hoping there's a little bit of white space that I could work with on the back of, of that thing, and just... Uh, that's just sort of always been with me. It's also true in school. And some teachers thought that was really amazing and wonderful or cute. And there were others that uh, let me know they didn't appreciate <laughs> my <laughs> endeavor yeah. and I needed to pay attention better. Uh, but that's sort of a, a through line that's going to come through this, this story. And um, I think, again, for you, the, your particular audience, it might be, 
interesting to know that also, I think my parents and the church I went to in Richmond, Virginia, really, really hoped I would turn out to be a preacher. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) I know. know. And I liked being, you know, I got to, at a certain point, I was shy through uh, my young part of my life, but at some point it kind of flipped and I kind of liked uh, getting up there and telling stuff and stories and whatever. So I, you know, whenever I was around, like in high school, and then of course going away to college, I uh, went to a small um, uh, Church of Christ school, liberal arts school in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, whenever I got back home, I always found that they were saying, "Can you can you preach for us tonight?" All that kind of stuff, and I'd do, I'd do it. So I think that was sort of a subtext to uh, what I think people were rooting for in my life. And I wasn't opposed to that. I thought, okay. So after I graduated from um, Lipscomb University, I got a job at a local church as a apprentice minister and just figured that, well, that might just be my path. So I, I did that. And it really took about, I was there a year. And I think about halfway through that year, I realized this was not my path. <laughs> it just didn't fit really at all. Uh, and I, I just, I don't know. I, I, this is just a note about some of us, it all, at least it feels like some people know exactly what they're going to be. And, you know, I'm going to be a doctor or whatever it is. And they go through their training and all the things required. And they just seem like they're on this sort of super highway to life. And I'm just sort of in the bushes wandering, you know, as far as what am I, what will I be? Um, And along that little story is uh, a really exciting little moment. And I didn't know it was exciting at the time. It was later in life. But uh, on television, back when you get three channels and then that fourth one with the UHF, uh, there was a show that came out for really young kids uh, this is when I was in high school, but it was uh, for really young kids, brand new, very different, uh, very progressive, that um, was getting a lot of buzz. And I started to watch it. And uh, there was something in particular, I love the cartoons in it and whatever, but uh, there were these two puppet characters that I just fell in love with. And their names were Bert and Ernie. Mm. And I just thought, oh, <laughs> yeah. this is exactly what I'd like to be doing, whatever it was. I wanted to be involved in that. And, you know, that it didn't, that didn't immediately lead to a path. It's just in the back of my head, kind of a light bulb came, came on. And uh, all along the way, I'm studying art. That's sort of, I declared to my parents, I'm going to be an art major. And I have to say, they sort of, I'm sure, swallowed hard and uh, like, okay, <laughs> and didn't get you know once they knew that's what i was wanting mine you know, they, thought the same way saying i was going to be a music major yeah there you go it's perfect that uh all these little art categories in particular that don't seem to lead anywhere uh but anyway that that's sort of um how things are going at, at that point and um at some sometime after i left my pursuits at this church and all of that, I decided, like all of us do when we're out in the world after school, 
and we, we see the big world in front of us, we sort of retreat back into postgraduate work. So I, um, <laughs> I applied at uh, the Ohio State University to go in their uh, Department of Communication into the School of Photography and Cinematography. And I wanted to study animation. So that's really a little more specific path-y kind of thing going on. And um, off I went to school up in uh, Columbus, Ohio, and um, loved it. It was exciting. Uh, it's the first time in my life my parents fin financially supported me through college. This going to graduate school was on me. Yeah. And so you, you really start stopping, skipping class and all the other stuff that one might choose to do. Um, this is probably other people, not me, of course. But <laughs> I, sorry. I, uh, I eventually, like within a few quarters, it's expensive. And I ran out of money. And uh, so I had to go get a job out in uh, Columbus and got one at a library. Uh, in their audiovisual department. So now I'm a professional AV nerd and um, not sure where that path was going to lead me. They, uh, there at this, uh, I got a, this job at the library, had a puppet program. And I thought, there's something I can do. So I'm starting to help them build a little puppet stage and I'm going to, you know, go that route. And, um, I had to go to get material to uh, make the puppet stage. So I went to a fabric store and of all things, while in this fabric store, I'm overhearing a conversation in front of me in the checkout line. And it was a conversation about a children's show that had come to Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, by the way, happens to be a test market for a lot of stuff because I assume it's incredibly average. And so you're going to get a good read on it. And, um, this guy is talking about this show for kids and uh, how some folks from New York had come there to do to, to this thing. And I don't know what happened to me, but I just decided to engage. And I just jumped in that in front of this guy. I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is exactly the kind of stuff I want to do. And I'll just do anything. I'll push a broom. Just please, please just give me a shot. And um, I, this is sort of a miracle moment because he went, well, yeah, come on over to the studio. We'll we'll figure something out or something. And so I did. I went to the studio where they are making this show. Um, it was a show called Pinwheel, and um, it were that it turned out that I found out that the people working on it were people that had worked on a show called The Electric Company. It was sort of the same kind of show made by the uh, Children's Television Workshop for slightly older kids than Sesame Street. And there they were in, New York, in um, Columbus making this show. And they actually, I met the uh, executive producer and I talked, did more of the begging that I just mentioned. And um, they hired me to work as a set painter and helper to the, really the genius behind the whole show idea, Brad Williams. And, um, he had been working with a Kelly girl that was a, a, a temp group and using them to paint. And so he was very happy to know that somebody that had a little training could uh, help him out. And we started talking while painting and all that over the weeks and weeks. And we, 
I told him of my interest in puppetry and he went, well, you want to, you want to do some puppets with me? And I'm like, yeah. So, uh, I, there I was starting to operate the big puppets that take two people and, um, we're doing that together. And then there were two characters on that show called plus and minus that were kind of Bert and Ernie kind of characters. They're little kid like characters. And he said, you want to do one of these characters? You want to be minus? And I said, yes. <laughs> so the next thing I know, I am on this TV show called Pinwheel in Columbus, Ohio, doing artwork and props and that kind of stuff, but also being a puppeteer. So I'm, I can't believe it. I mean, I'm just as excited as I get, you know. And um, then that show finished and they leave and go back to New York. And so I feel marooned. I am in Columbus, Ohio. It just, it was bleak. I just, I just thought, what happened? I thought I was on a track, you know? And um, what I didn't know is that those folks that went back to New York had many meetings and discussions and whatever and planning and decided, why are we doing this one-off show? This show, by the way, aired on a thing called Cube, Q-U-B-E, 24 hours a day. This preschool show just repeated over and over and over, and it was just its own channel. They said, why would we just do one show? What about a network of kids' shows, including Pinwheel? Um, that could be our flagship show at the beginning. But um, let's do that, and I don't know, let's call it Nickelodeon. And so that happened uh, up there, and I got a phone call inviting me to come up to New York and work on new seasons of Pinwheel. Uh, I cannot express to you how big of a deal that was to be given that opportunity. It was a seismic, life-changing moment for me. And because that happened, of course, I'm being, I'm all on it and intuitive. I go, well, I don't know. I, I've got a freelance art career going down here, which is not really true. I was doing some mall shows and stuff, but nothing was going on really. Um, but I went up to New York anyway. And uh, it was hard at first. Living in New York is in, in New York City takes acclimating. You know, I'm a suburban kid. And it took about six months of living there to figure it out. Uh, and I flipped 180 degrees and fell in love with being there. And um, a lot of that had to do with working on Pinwheel and other shows uh, for Nickelodeon and um, feeling like I really had purpose and I was on a track. And that just sort of now hooks up to and begins to balloon into cable, which used to just be a way to get great reception on your TV, especially out in rural areas, turned into a delivery device for many channels to come into anybody's home. And so now instead of three channels in UHF, you now could get 30 channels or, you know, whatever, which, as we all know, blossomed into hundreds of channels and uh, all the things that have come since. But all that sort of erupted in, in New York City. We were sort of the epicenter of that. And there were a lot of shows 
that were gearing up and making things. And so it was a great time, an exciting time to, to be there and to be a freelance artist and a production designer and, and uh, all those things were happening. Um, so I don't know. I, I was sort of a working stiff in New York City and feeling like that was going to be my path. And along the way, uh, at night, uh, I would doodle again, back to doodling. And uh, it was this one little character that was sort of my alter ego that I would draw these little single panel cartoons of. And it would just sort of capture an, a mood of the day. So those could be funny and silly and all that. They could also be incredibly dark and incredibly inappropriate for the eyes of anyone else but myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I did that for a while and had a bunch of those. And the, that character's name was Doug. And so that went on, that little piece of story, just let's say five years of just living in New York, working on shows, drawing these things and, and uh, other characters. And that began to morph uh, into something else the day I asked my good friend David Campbell, uh, what do you think? Look at all this stuff I've done, all these cartoons and all. And David is the one, my friend said, you need to put this in a book. Come up with a book proposal and uh, see where that'll take you. And I actually listened. I actually did that. And um, with the help of a, another good friend and writer, Joe Aaron, we wrote a book proposal called um, Doug Got a New Pair of Shoes. And um, I started taking that all around New York City to the publishers. And I was rejected by the very best of publishing houses. You know, just not, it was it was rough. <laughs> it was really rough. Um, and getting a lot of uh, feedback along the way that was, uh, you know, suggestions like, you know, yeah, that's interesting. What you need to think about doing is uh, starting over again. So <laughs> helpful advice like that. But um, <laughs> it was something that if you knew me back then, you knew about this Doug project that I had in my head. You know, no one else knew about it much, but I did. And, I, and, and it was something I was talking about a lot. And so another big moment of life is when, again, my phone rang and a girl that uh, I had worked on a um, pilot for a game show with, her name is um, Linda Shupak. She calls up out of the blue and says, Jim, Nickelodeon is starting a new division called Nicktoons. They're looking for original creator-driven ideas. Get over there. Show them Doug. And I went, Okay. You know, and so just, again, just sort of hapless, but I somehow got an appointment and took that little book proposal into Nickelodeon and met uh, a woman named Vanessa Coffey, who is the head of, of Nicktoons. And I began to describe who Doug is and uh, how it works and his best friend, you know, non-human friend, his pork chop, the dog, and all the things I was telling her. And very quickly, upon, uh, I haven't even shown her the, the detail of the book yet, she ran out of the room, which is incredibly disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what just happened? And I did not know this until later, but uh, she apparently had run out of the room to go to her boss. And she went to that office and said, I, I have a guy in my office He's the real deal. I want to take his idea to pilot. 
So that's what she walked back in the room and said that to me. You're going to pilot. This does not happen. This is uh, this is where David, you need to insert some lightning and thunder. This is a <laughs> big, big break. Uh, it, it, it just it doesn't happen this way. But um, she let me do that, and uh, I gathered the uh, animators that I knew uh, from working on various short-term projects, and a producer uh, who was a junior producer that I'd worked with, and. Uh, a director, all the key people you need to make this. And we made this little eight-minute piece, um, a little film that was made entirely by these New York artists and directors and producers called um, Doug Can't Dance. And that went into testing at Nickelodeon, and it turned out that it tested higher than any of their other pilots. And Vanessa said, we're picking you up for uh 26 half hours well now how much how much of of doug did you actually draw of, of the whole animation part was that all you i would <laughs> sarcastically i'd be like yes david i did it yeah. all but that's far from true what i drew were the original characters and what they looked like what they wore what were the colors of the characters what, it, what did the house look like, the car look like, you know, what does the journal look like that Doug drew in? Any, I, did, I did those drawings, but it has turned over pretty quickly to a bunch of people that draw even I mean, a ton better than I do. And they begin to figure out how to, how to turn that character. And what do they look like? If they look like this, you know, in the front, how do they look on the side or from the back? And you know, they began to develop it. And I needed a lot of help to do that. I had not done that before. And so uh, we, we're we growing quickly with all these people that we're helping. Well, what, about, we're, what about the script then? Were you a part of that process as well? Yes. My, my, my answer to almost any element of making a show is going to be yes, that I was the one ultimately that's steering that just one. So it sounds and looks and feels like, all of this is coming out of one voice, one, my, you know, my mind. But obviously there's hundreds of people involved. But yes, I, I worked, I helped cast the characters. Um, the writing was done. We had to bring in writers. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge pressing schedule. But we would break shows together. I would talk about memories of childhood and what, what would Doug do? That was something I was all over wanting to steer uh, and, and how we would tell stories. And really, I spent a lot of time talking about what we would not do. Uh, a lot of what you see in Doug is what isn't there. Um, and I just I had a particular point of view about the kinds of stories that I wanted to tell. And I guess this is where it steers back into I, I didn't want to be a formal minister in a church setting. But I did want to do something with my life with meaning, something that had a, a, a hard um, moral center in the center of our storytelling and whatever. And that felt kind of maybe original. I think Mr. Rogers was all over doing that. He was great at it. But I just felt like there was a lot of programming out there that wasn't really tuned into that. And I wanted to do that. So that was became sort of my mission 
and now the momentum's flying. This term, in terms of your path, this one felt solid and and something I wanted to build on. And we did. We had we had we ran a company called Jumbo Pictures. We had that company for um, fifteen years of production, and we were we continued to make other things as well for a total of about twenty years in New York City. So it was an incredibly exciting journey that led to a lot of TV shows for both Nickelodeon and Disney and Sesame Street and a lot of various people that were interested in the kind of stories we told. Well, how did you go about deciding, in addition to Doug, what kind of stories you wanted to tell? Well, storytelling is just, when you say I'm a cartoonist, that there's, yeah, I, I draw cartoons. But I would say I would I would describe myself as a storyteller, and with you use the tools that are all around you, and some is drawing, and some of it's animating, and some of it's writing, and um, it's it just you keep getting ideas and you see opportunities. Doug was made the target audience was eight to eleven year old kids, and Doug was we made him eleven and a half years old. We always felt like that was a kid at the height of his kid powers. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> so we did that. But I, you know, once we had, uh, I got married to Lisa, a, a modern dancer I met in New York City. And um, once we had uh, little kids and diapers and all that, you get inspired. And so a show like PB&J Otter is a show that we made for Disney that is directly inspired by having little teeny toddlers in our house and and later on uh it became bed night bedtime stories for my kids and a lot of the stuff you make up for your kids at night most of it's like okay that was flat or i was really tired <laughs> but every now and again you do one that's like wow that that holds up and and our kids would say do it again do it again and tell us another one and though that was the germ for uh, several series um including Pinky Dinky Doo and um, and others. But Pinky Dinky Doo was a great series experience because I drew for our oldest kid, uh, Rose. And I said, look, this is what Pinky Dinky Doo looks like. And Rose was old enough, about six years old, said, that's not what Pinky looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, really? Can you show me what Pinky looks like? And Rose began drawing which kind of blew my mind. Uh, not that that was, that was not the first time I'd seen Rose draw, but Rose was connected. And so we began to uh, design that show together. So there's things like that that happened where it's just a long life's way. Uh, there all kinds of stuff inspire you to tell all kinds of stories. Well, now you um, seem to, to, to be rooted in, in wanting to tell stories for children. Yes. How did how did how did that come about? <laughs> it's a great question, I think, because I want to just blurt out because adults aren't listening. <laughs> 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 um, and what I mean by that is, I think that as we get older, we do begin to close in, and we lose some of our inhibition, our ability to imagine, and. Um, when you're a little kid, the thought of believing in stories, fairy tale stories, or um, other other kinds of 
of, of things and a child will buy into that and just you can just wrap a, wrap a kid's attention with capturing them in some story you're making up that that falls off over time for some folks i think they they lose that skill or that willingness we get all serious sometimes and we live in very serious times and um I just, I think I enjoy kids because they still listen. That's, that's my take on it. <laughs> well, that's, that's great. Well, I just turned off everybody listening. I know, but that's, no, that's, no, that's, that's wonderful. I don't mean it offensively. Well, now, so then, um, is your focus educational intentionally? Or how much of it, how, like, what's the yeah. ratio between just entertainment and education? Yeah. That's a great question too. Um, I always almost, love it when my guests say that. <laughs> well, it's just you're just hitting at the things that challenge. How can I say this well? Because a whole lot of what we did professionally, the answer is yes. It had educational content because I wanted to, but because we had to. The FCC required it, and they put a stamp on the front of your show when it aired that it was approved by their standards. And uh, it had to prove it had to show educational content. Um, and so we it might be social, emotional uh, learning. It might be um, early literacy. There are all kinds of things that we I felt like when it was a good match for the kinds of stories we were telling. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So, yeah, a lot of the stuff we did was um, officially educational. I would say a, a lot of it I'm hoping landed as entertainment and it, that it was people, kids feel like it's funny and they fall in love with the characters or maybe they go, hey, that's how I feel. And that's that's a score, you know, and that the educational stuff is just woven in in a way that's fun and that you want to learn these things. Well, now, I mean, is that a change? In, in requirements because, you know, my memory of most of the shows that I watched, you know, Huckleberry Hound, uh, you know, Deputy Dog, uh, Bugs Bunny, there wasn't a lot of education in that. Uh, you know, it, it was most, I mean, except for the classical music that Bugs Bunny always played, you know. Yes. Uh, you know, it, it was mostly entertainment. And, and so is that something, I guess, that's changed where they require the educational component? I would say, David, because I grew up on the same stuff and loved it. But I would say if you, you know, in a show where uh, a duck is going to drop an anvil, you know, off the top of a building, you know, and hit you in the head and you turn into a, a pancake. Yeah. That's, you know, that's probably that's the stuff I laugh the hardest at. You might notice that you don't see a lot of that these days. All right. <laughs> things have changed. And um, there are uh, guardrails, a whole lot of them, where back in our day, you know, some of those, a lot of those cartoons were made for the entertainment of the people making them. And they would show Bugs Bunny cartoons, for example, in a movie theater uh, before the uh, main film to entertain uh, a broad uh, audience of mostly adults. And that's, that is of course very, very different from what I'm talking about where, where they have now sectioned off uh, whole channels 
uh, that you can stream, that you can be pretty certain that they've made that content appropriate for the age group, you know, that they're uh, advertising that they're playing to. So it's all very different in that way. And yes, so it did change. And it changed while I was on my watch. While we were going through, there was that uh, that d demand for uh, th there to be content in the shows that played on the networks. Well, then, when did you transition to Disney? Um, we... We get this gets a little bit into uh, our legal agreements, but um, I still think it's fun to to talk about that we had an agreement with Nickelodeon that said we would make sixty five half hours of Doug, um, and at some point along the way, for reasons I don't fully understand because I was not a Nickelodeon executive, but at some point they informed me. After making 52 half hours, they said, we unfortunately are not going to make the, the last 13. Um, this is the end of, of us making Doug with you. And that, was, that will be one of the lowest. That day was one of the hardest, most awful days of my life. Uh, we, had, we were up to speed. We're talking about hundreds of people working on this show and all geared up now to finish this out and keep going. And uh, so I didn't see that coming. And uh, it, it was a dark moment that I tell as you don't know that it's actually the brightest moment that's going to happen to you. And the reason is in our contract, we were allowed, we were protected saying if you, if they did not make 65 half hours, the right to continue to make the show would revert to me after a certain period of time. And uh, it was about two years later that I was free and clear to take Doug wherever I wanted. And this is just one of those wonderful timing things where Disney was in an expansion mode. And uh, under um, Michael Eisner's leadership, they acquired ABC, that network. And I think they were concerned that they would have enough programming to put up on Saturday morning, which was, a, the, the you know, you know, that's the kid's world, you know, right. Saturday. Yeah. And um, they came to us. This was one of those where I'm like, what, what's going on today? And, the, and my assistant goes, you have a lunch with so-and-so from Disney. I'm like, really? Okay, that's fine. And it turns out he was coming to check us out. And he had lunch with um, my business partner and friend, David Campbell. Uh, and the two of us met with this guy who was the head of Disney television programming. And within days, he called back to us and said, we want to in enter into a conversation about acquiring your company. And this happened like a whirlwind. It, it, it had, within a few months, uh, we chose to go with this offer that they proposed and to lock, stock, and barrel, move our company to uh, Disney. And it was just a rebirth of Doug and the beginning of many other series that we worked on. We worked on, that's where we worked on PBNJ Otter. We worked on 101 Dalmatian, the, the TV series. Um, we worked uh, on a lot of other book projects, toy projects, 
online projects. Uh, we worked on a show called Stanley, uh, another movement show for preschool kids called JoJo Circus. We made a lot of stuff. Um, and maybe at the top of the list was when they invited me to do a feature film uh, of Doug called Doug's First Movie. Uh, which will be one of the most exciting things and kind of felt like the pinnacle of of uh, what we were doing at Disney. To, to get into their feature film department was unbelievable. I mean, that's really their wheelhouse. So, um, yeah, that, that was that was a fun run. Well, do you do you have any itch uh, to move into adult cartoons? Because you mentioned, you know, that, that, that Bugs Bunny and things were written for, by adults for adults in a lot of ways. And, I mean, is that something, you know, because there's Family Guy, uh, the, the Simpsons, you know, those kind of things that are they're geared for an adult audience. Uh, well, I'm going to tell you a little piece of my story that I rarely ever tell anyone. <laughs> and you're getting ready to hear it. Um, but I, that itch was itching me to death. I was getting tired of being uh, pigeonholed as just the, the 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 guy that makes the shows for young kids. I don't know why. That sounds pretty good to me now. But at the time, I'm like, you know, I had worked on as a um, director and producer at the Comedy Channel and uh, in New York and uh, worked with all kinds of amazing people. That's where I met Jon Stewart, who was a writer on one of the shows and others. And... Uh, it was all adult humor and edgy and um, because of the audience, you know, we're doing it for people that, you know, that, that were adults and uh, smart Alex and all that. And it was exciting to, to work on those things. So I wanted to, I didn't want to leave that, you know, I wanted to, to show that we could do that as well. So out of the blue, I got a call from uh, ESPN of all things. And they wanted to, at least an executive there wanted to get involved in animation. I think he had to do with his kids or I don't know why, but for some, in some impossible way, ESPN picked us up to make 13 half hours of a show that we created called Hoyt and Andy's sports bender. And it was as edgy as we could make it and still feel good about ourselves. And, um, it was just about two hapless sports commentators who were just sort of winging it and uh, sort of missed the point constantly about what sports really is. And we just thought it was really funny. And um, it, it just, you know, ESPN deciding they were going to do that was not something they universally uh, believed. That there were those that were very opposed to this. And maybe rightly so. It's 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 um it's not for the faint of heart to get into animation. It's a lot of money that goes out very quickly, and you've got to play the waiting game. It's going to take many many years to see that money come back through creating it a, a destination for many cartoons and for your toy lines and the other stuff you do to make it a good economic model. And I th I think ESPN did not really want to go there and this executive sort of one day he was at the elevator with a a shopping bag of all his stuff from his desk and realized when we were we were showing up there to go to a meeting with him and he was kind of asked to leave the building and he was gone and uh 
I don't know. It was just a weird piece of my story. But we did make those 13 episodes. And they exist. They played well overseas in various places. But no one much knows about that little story. Well, is that something you still want to do? You know, uh, Not so much. I found maybe that's why things like that happen. <laughs> uh, I have to learn things the hard way, I think. But I think that trying to keep up with what is considered edgy and entertaining to adults is tricky. And I think you have to move into places that I feel like I don't have time for or the patience for. And um, there, and I, I say that, and it's, I know it's a weird statement. It, it, it really has to do with what is your idea, uh, you individually, David, or you, the, us as viewers, what is it we, are, we think are, is funny? And we would, you know, we could get all worked up about what we think is brilliantly funny and what we think is annoying and obnoxious or um, just not, not good. And, and, I, and I'll take a chance and I'll even mention a series that I think it almost feels like I knew the, the creator uh, came and talked to us about Doug and it just, it wasn't a perfect fit. And I get why, because he went on to, first of all, make Beavis and Butthead, mm. but that was King of the Hill. And I mm. think King of the Hill is a brilliant series. Um, and it just feels like it's a, it's a more adult version because of the themes but it has a lot of the heart and sensibility that we were trying to do for kids. But that I think that's a brilliant, that's just an example of one I like. But there's a number of them that I do not find funny and I just kind of just don't want to spend my time dealing with. So I'll stop right there <laughs> before I get in trouble. But um, Well, so how did, how during all this time did you integrate faith? You know, how did, how did your faith come into play? Uh, in all this process? I, I think that the first thing I wanted to do was never, ever, ever get caught, quote unquote, preaching. I'm, I'm making rabbit ears now. Um, that I don't want to get on some soapbox about, you know, this, not that, and be whatever. I, I was competing and making shows and telling stories in a very secular marketplace. And I was very comfortable in that world, a lot more so than me working way back in the day in a church environment. And yet I wanted to offer um, ideas about what it means to do, quote unquote, the right thing, to, to, to do the right thing even when it, you don't benefit from it or we, even when it costs you and things like that, that, uh, Things about loving your neighbor, I'm getting into some Christian themes, things that Jesus talked about, but there are a zillion ways to talk about that and show examples of it without getting too heavy-handed or pedantic about it. And um, that is that is the through line, telling stories that have a what I believe to be a, a strong moral center, but keeping it where it can play in a secular marketplace. Well, what about politics? And how, <laughs> did, how did you, you know, see what you did? Because you talked about, you know, the importance of moral stories. Uh, but what about the political dimension of those moral questions? Yes. 
Well, um, my political views, you know, we live in a very caustic time where you can make enemies almost in an instant by stating your political positions. But if, for me to talk about, let's just, I'm just going to be specific for a second and say, let's just talk about lying. Something as simple as that. We train our kids to tell the truth. We talk about how important it is. But it somehow seems like as we become adults, it becomes uh, a tool. <laughs> the um, lying can become this tool that you can wield and it can you can wield it to your advantage. And it becomes where it flips to where winning becomes more important than listening to your constituency or uh, doing the right thing and all of this. And so I love telling stories about that without getting into whether that's coming from one side or another side uh, so that everybody hopefully can listen and maybe, maybe one in a billion might go, wow, I remember that that is a good idea, you know. So I kind of tiptoed around your question. <laughs> oh, my God. So you're you know, a politician this, after all. Oh, my God. I, well, I get very worked up about, and I'm a news junkie, and um, what what's going on now is sad and scary sometimes. And uh, I, I have a lot of strong feelings about it, but you're asking me these things in the context of, of the kind of storytelling I do. And I think that it, it is best I can to try to speak to everyone uh, without compromising my views about morality and doing the right thing in the higher calling. I, I think that that's what I'm trying to do. Well, now do you, do you have an interest in, um, as you, as you did with Doug initially, uh, was put it in book form. Uh, right. Do, do you have an interest in kind of furthering that project in any kind of a way of, of producing cartoon books? Yes. Um, we made many, many books. In fact, if you're around, if I see you on Wednesday night this week, <laughs> I'm going to pull up with about um, maybe eight boxes, book boxes, 10 books, book boxes filled with books that we're going to give to uh, anyone that wants them, but uh, teachers in particular. And there are books that were made uh, that were spinoffs from the Doug series in particular. And I wrote, uh, I wrote seven Pinky Dinky Doo books uh, that um, were really what fueled us making that series. And I'm gonna bring all those things and make available for anyone that wants them and, and save some out because we use them when we do classes for kids and talk about the creative process. And I think it's fun at the end of it to say, and would you like to go home with this book and, you know, and hand them out? So it's kind of a nice bonus. So anyway, in, historically, we've done lots and lots of books. I have written uh, a handful of them. And, and of course, we, they were illustrated by the people that worked on the show so that always looked like the thing you could see on TV. Um, in the future, the answer is yes. Um, we're currently working with a wonderful uh, couple of people in Cherokee, North Carolina, 
Uh, I want to learn more about Cherokee culture, not so I can co-opt it and, and tell stories, but so I can help work with them, the people where we know, to tell their story. That's about as exciting as it gets. I, I'm fascinated with uh, uh, indigenous folk and uh, their story, which is a hard story to hear in our country. But um, they have a story to tell, and um, especially preserving some of uh, their story to their kids. So that's something that we're working on moving forward in time. Just an example. Well, you have had a wonderful, amazing uh, career and have done some some amazing things uh, that have been uh, what I would consider uh, making the world better. Uh, so what do you see going on from here? How do you see this, this path uh, taking you? Well, first of all, thank you for <laughs> what you just said. That gave me goosebumps. Um, and I will say this about, I, I told you just the highlights, stories that were fun to tell. Sometimes people hear me tell those highlights and go, well, just everything went your way. That's why it was so great. And I'm thinking, wow, I really didn't tell the story right. There are plenty of low points and, and setbacks and all just all kinds of uh, range of emotions that have, have taken me um, through this path. But I will say this, I had no idea of this path. I couldn't, I couldn't picture it. You know, I, I thought I had a big imagination as a kid and, and looking forward, but I had, this has exceeded my wildest dreams about things that have happened uh, that I just can't believe. We've been, we've made things and been places and met people that I just didn't, didn't count on. <laughs> and um, so moving forward, whatever I think, I'm guessing I'll probably be wrong about it <laughs> because you just never know what's going to happen next, uh, both good and bad. But I will say that my, my prayer, my dream and hope is that I will always be a storyteller and I'll look for opportunities to be with people. Uh, they don't have to just be kids. <laughs> I, I, I just would love to find folks that are still willing to, to listen, having ears to hear, you know, and uh, want to hear a story and to find different ways to do it. Cause as you know, the, you know, the medium is changing at amazing speed and uh, how, how stories are delivered, how people access things and all that is, is changing and to try to keep up, but always realize that there's sort of this fundamental thing underneath it all of trying to tell stories that are funny or entertaining or compelling and underneath it, having this sort of uh, missional idea that you're telling something worth hearing that maybe makes a kid have a have find more success in tr in terms of uh truly living and being happy so um i hope that that comes through any medium that's available that we can do um that, i don't know i'll stop there I mean, it's just I, it's so vague what i just said but i want to be open and um i want to enjoy these mountains that we live in and to uh, you know, 
connect, connect with nature and um, its beauty and um, just sort of see where the path leads. Well, Jim, thank you so much uh, for being with me. Uh, the story was great. Uh, the insights uh, were wonderful. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm deeply grateful for you being my guest today. So thank you. Oh, thank you. But thanks for asking. You're a good guy. I love your energy, and um, I wish you well. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. The two clips of music used during this interview come from Doug theme song music and are used with Jim's permission. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.